and welcome to Business Extra with me, Andy Scott, and the business editor, Mustafa Al-Rawi. Today, we'll be talking the tale of two towers. Dubai Creek Tower has been announced. It will be 928 metres high, and Jeddah Tower, which was Kingdom Tower, will be surpassing that. Both will be arriving on the shores in the UAE and Saudi in 2019. However, will it be a harbinger of doom? What do you reckon, Mustafa? It's interesting that uh, Imar Properties uh, chairman, Mohammed Alabar, came out yesterday and, and sort of put a figure on what the Dubai Creek Tower would be. It's almost like he was laying down the gauntlet to the Saudis of, you know, if you're going to build a kilometre tower, you better build a kilometre tower because if not, then we will still have the crown over here for the tallest tower in the world. Now, how important is it? I don't know. Isn't the latest Independence Day movie, they an alien throws the Burj Khalifa or something? Is that, I if don't I heard correctly. So, you know, there is a cachet, um, particularly when you're talking about Armageddon, of having the world's tallest tower in your city. But also, it's interesting because with everything that's going on in the region, uh, you know, worries about slowdown. The World Bank today put out its June forecast and it said that growth will be about 2% in the UAE, um, over a percent lower than, than it said before. So really, we're all looking for drivers for growth. What's going to keep us going? So two massive construction projects in the region can't be bad if we're looking for positives to keep us going. That's true. Although, as I said in the intro, is this a harbinger of doom? And I said that because when the Burj Khalifa was finished, that was 2010. We all know what that was surrounding us then. Uh, when uh, the Taipei 101 in Malaysia, which was the previous tallest building, that was at the heart of the Asian crisis. Uh, before that, we had uh, well, the Empire State Building and Sears Tower were both built uh, as the Great Depression came to the height of, its, uh, of, it, uh, of the wrath of it. And it was also 1972, I think, the Chrysler Building, which brought in stagflation in the US, which is a time when uh, unemployment is rising, prices are rising, and sales are dropping. So these statistics are now seen as, a, I think it's called a skyscraper index, which has said that in boom times, we start to build these huge um, monuments to, to capitalism. And yet they're usually delivered at times when the world can't keep up with that boom. I mean, we, we're human, so we love these stories. I mean, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, which was the you know the, the first, first yes. the first skyscraper that that brought us doom. But also, if you think about the size of the and scale of these projects and the amount of money involved to mobilize the resources required for these super projects, to make that success usually indicates some kind of overheating in the economy anyway the the banks that are lending the construction companies that are putting the people on um, the amount of buyers out there taking properties so it's it's perhaps not surprising that they coincide because when the economy tends to overheat or get to that level of activity then there is only one way that things are going to go and that's typically down however i would say the slight difference here is that not that the Dubai Creek Tower is hollow, but it is certainly not Burj Khalifa Mark II. This isn't uh, a project that's requiring you know, millions of, of, of dollars of investment because it's going to be mainly a, a tourist attraction. Yeah, it's with, more like the Eiffel Tower. Right, exactly. So perhaps it won't require that kind of manifest of, uh, of economic strength that usually indicates there might be a collapse coming. However, the Jeddah Tower sounds a lot more like like that 
Uh, the good news is that'll probably be late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming, right? Because these things are never on time. So if that's 29, let's say the Dubai Creek Tower comes in on time at 2019. Let's speculate that the Jeddah Tower or Kingdom Tower comes in at 2021. That might make sense because we've had Expo, uh, which would have been another driver for growth. That would be finished. And then, and then you would have had all the construction jobs done for the World Cup 2022 in Qatar. So then without an actual new driver for growth, then we do run out of steam naturally at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Although I do think that, I mean, when you say that the, um, the Dubai Creek Tower isn't as, um, as substantial, shall we say, as Burj Khalifa, as in it's not going to be mixed use. It, he was talking about also building a shopping mall bigger than Dubai Mall. Uh, they, for Dubai Mall, they increased the thoroughfares, the corridors, and by 30% bigger than normal. And he said, we underestimated it. We needed to make it bigger. And the, the, um, the commercial element to this mall that we're hoping building, oh, by the way, this is, it's being built on the side of Dubai, which is fairly undeveloped. Uh, in fact, there's a wildlife sanctuary right next to it. I think they'll be the best fed fish on the planet. Uh, but they, um, th- that is going to take a huge amount of investment, not just for the tower, but for the, the surrounding infrastructure. So it's still a significant outlay. Of course. And I'm, I'm not trying to down, downplay it, but the, I think just maybe it might be worth thinking that we're, it, it's not a lock-in that 2019 that as soon as that tower's finished that that's going to indicate anything we might have a a few more years if the momentum builds you know we've we've been talking for the last few weeks about things like theme parks and tourism and you know all all these other things that we expect to keep the economy going you know oil price recovers to a certain extent next year and then you have that momentum so yes the definitely you put the world's tallest tower up you you set the clock ticking for when things are going to slow down it just might not be as fast as, as we think. That's true. Well, you mentioned Saudi. You mentioned their economy. There's been some new developments as to what their 2030 vision uh, has, has been. And it, it's, again, it's, it's, while there is more flesh on the bone, if you like, it still isn't um, as, as full as most investors would like. This is a meal of many courses, Andy. <laughs> uh, and we, we're not going to be allowed to be gluttons uh, right from the off yeah Yeah. definitely we're getting it piecemeal and um and and fair enough because this is a massive undertaking and uh it's not even though the the targets are hard and they're and they're ambitious and they're asking for turnarounds you know 2020 in four years i'll give you an example in that transformation document that they released um, in the last 24 hours, they said they wanted to double the real estate sector's contribution to GDP to 15% from 8% by 2020, which is incredible. In it, in of itself, that is a property boom, uh, you know, on its own. Now they they showed a little bit of how they would make this happen. So, and, and this kind of is one of the rare examples of having a little bit more detail. Mm-hmm. So currently the level of ownership of homes is quite low, even even regionally speaking. I think it's under 50% mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia. So they want to get two tracks going. The first being um, that some families, 40% of families, begin to be put on the road towards home ownership, the early road, the early footsteps. Then 60% of families, the rest of them, are actually going to be given support to buy their own homes. And so that way, they managed to very, very quickly uh, create demand. And then I think there's all this empty land. There's all this lack of affordable housing. And perhaps that's because they, they, people haven't seen the demand there to take the risk. 
But if demand is created, and they're talking about slashing sort of the time to home ownership from 15 years to five years of getting the finance in place, then then it starts to, to be very, very compelling. It seems, though, I mean, uh, forgive me for saying it if it, it sounds harsh, it's almost an undertaking too far for what we know of Saudi as a country right now. They are traditionally uber conservative yes they are traditionally uber secretive and now they own uber <laughs> as well but not all of it sorry to interrupt but tony anti mccauley's piece today um detailing the plan addresses this very point and and one of the the experts who he speaks to says that there's perhaps a, a misunderstanding of saudi arabia well of course it appears to be conservative when they need to do things They've been shown in the past, in the 1990s, when they had problems with public debt, their capital markets are actually the best regulated in the region. And that happened quite fairly, in a fairly short period of time. They're able to do something. So let's not underestimate them yet, is the message. That's, that, that's fair enough. However, I still think it is a gargantuan task for anybody. And we're asking someone who is not... It doesn't come naturally to them to, to look for outside help. And this this will need a lot of outside help. But they're not shirking their own responsibility. So, of course, everybody needs outside help. Um, and we're here we're talking about foreign direct investment in key sectors, renewables to help their energy mix, healthcare, uh, you know, a few other sectors that are going to require uh, private sector participation. And it won't just be in Saudi, but elsewhere. But they have to create the environment for people to come in and help. And that's what they're saying here. 268 billion Saudi riyals of initiatives are part of this plan to essentially create the environment in which this investment will flow, that they'll be able to create the higher non-oil revenues, they'll be able to improve their efficiencies, and as you alluded to, the you know, cutback of the public sector um, and to kind of get more, more jobs going in the private sector. So they know their responsibility is to kind of pave the way for it, and then hopefully that'll create enough of an incentive for the, the, the help to come. I just think that when we've got 80% of the Saudi workforce employed by the government and you want people to migrate towards the private uh, sector and the private sector hasn't, uh, it's hardly been welcomed there, you've got an imbalance and it usually takes quicker than four years to, (laughs) sorry, longer than four years to sort that sort of balancing act out. Of course, there are going to be people who fear that they're going to lose out of this. I mean, those that counted on jobs for life and the civil service and whatnot. But there's definitely a shift towards a meritocracy here. So let's say on the one hand, there are the able out there, the people with ability should not fear this. They should embrace this. They're looking to move 300 leaders from the private sector into the civil service while removing 20% of the civil service. I guess get rid of wastage and bring in some really talented people. But at the same time, uh, Prince, the Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has made assurances that he will support um, the, the most vulnerable of society. He'll make sure that they continue to get what they need. And in, in a lot of that, by the way, a lot of the plan was talking about, you know, um, connecting houses to the water supply. You know, many, many households, basics. Are, the basics, right? So, you know, it's OK. You might say don't count on a job for life from the whatever ministry X or Y. But your day-to-day life will improve because you'll have running water and electricity. Yeah, well, so, uh, I mean, are we looking at, do you think we're looking at uh, a flourishing of Saudi Arabia? Do you think when uh, your kids, your kids are young, do you think when your kids are adults, 
we'll, they'll be looking at Saudi Arabia in a totally different light. Definitely. I, I have to be optimistic at this point. And because we've been through so many false dawns, you know, the Arab Spring in itself was a false dawn. And perhaps because it was built on foundations that were, uh, you know, always going to run out of steam because it was based on sort of this p- political idea that was really quite Western in its focus, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. coming from the, how, how the West thought the Arab should be. Well, this is, even though, you know, we've got various consultants at the bottom of this, um, McKinsey, no less, mm-hmm. it's still an economic push, which is probably what we need. Yeah. It's probably the right path to take rather than, you know, saying one vo- one person, one vote. You know, I think, you know, that, that perhaps doesn't account for the bread and the power and, and the things that people actually need as yeah. in electricity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I think we've done enough Saudi there because we'll, we'll probably never, be we've never done enough no, Saudi. We'll probably be talking again next week. One last thing, and it's a slightly lighter. It's the fact that I saw Samsung in the new iteration of their next phone is going to be a bendy phone. And I thought, surely that spells the, the, the end of Samsung and Apple as the leaders of the mobile phone market. They've, they, they've come to a point where they cannot change or make the technology any better now they're just trying to play with the physics and it really did make me think that these mid-market phones now which can do everything your iphone can do or anything your galaxy or your edge can do are going to be the future i just think apple might have shot its bolt with there's no steve jobs there tim clark hasn't pulled up any trees and possibly it's time if i had apple shares i'd be thinking Maybe it's time I left them to somebody else. I think on that, we'll leave it. Have a good week, folks. Mm-hmm.